Well, we have a treat today. Gary Mack, our Director of Children, Youth, and Family Ministries, is our preacher. Gary, let me pray for you and for us. Gracious God, we thank you for the gift we have at Christ Church to have so many people uh, who are able and capable of proclaiming your word to us. We pray that as Gary preaches, we might hear your word to us and bless what he has to say. You would bless us as we hear, and that you would uh, give us your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, friends. During Christmas time, we, as Anglicans, set aside 12 days to celebrate the breaking in of passionate, abiding love to the most untended and desperate places of our society, and by extension, to our holy family's lives. God's just love, or loving justice, has broken in as we sit here through the tumultuous events surrounding the birth of Jesus, son of Joseph. And in Matthew, in our text today, uh, as opposed to, say, Luke, uh, in the book of Matthew, rather, we hear about Mary and Joseph fleeing as refugees to Egypt. We hear about King Herod, vassal of Rome, murdering a whole generation of children to hold on to his kingship. And Matthew, as an author, is little less concerned about chronology, and more concerned, it seems, with catastrophes happening politically and religiously to the Jews. Oh, and family scandal as well, I guess you might add. As, as Joseph is described, uh, he planned to quietly leave the mother of God. And as of January 6th, we read Matthew as set in this season of Epiphany, marked by the arrival of the Magi, and not wise men in Matthew, but Magi, who are more like mysterious sages. And I'm learning about Epiphany, about this season. I'm learning it's a season where we tear down the Christmas tree, and in turn we bring Christmas itself to the children, to the chores, to the crunching of tax numbers, uh, all, everything that needs to be done in January. If you're like me, and you have the baby Jesus swaddled in the manger, lying in your office still on January 6th, you too would be eyeing the Son of Man and saying, well, we're pretty busy around here, are you going to make yourself useful or just keep laying there? No? Okay, then. So if we stop singing Silent Night, and we, we bring its promises of peace and joy into the world, or if you're a typical North American family post-Christmas, you, you finally get a Silent Night, away from the drummer boys, away from the social obligations with Turkey, away from your neighbors flashing Christmas lights which beam into your bedroom, and you get to work. And as we've been following the narrative lectionary, we've been, we are privileged to hear about Jesus, son of Joseph, uh, as Matthew describes him, the son of so-and-so king, and even supposedly the king David, 
we see Jesus born into the precarious family of Mary and Joseph. But the family member who gets the most airtime, if you will, is a dude who dresses in camel, eats crunchy bugs, and lives in the middle of nowhere. This dude is supposed to be a prophet. He's mimicking the famous prophets of old. Uh, maybe that's not weird to you. Uh, maybe you know a family member like that, I don't know. Um, but somehow, Camel Hair is the one who gets to baptize Jesus, son of Joseph. So we don't get a famous rabbi. No, we get, we get Camel Hair. So the families of Israel, under the thumb of a Roman Empire in its heyday, is supposed to believe the author of Matthew that this boy, freshly dumped in the Jordan River, is the one that they were searching for all this time. The one who would give them peace where there was oppression, joy where there was mourning, peace and joy. So I invite you today to hear with me, think with me, how the families that heard about Jesus in the first century, in, in the synagogue, how they understood him, and how they kept trying to understand this man, this Jesus' strangeness. And as they heard again and again descriptions of Jesus, this guy from Nazareth, back down Nazareth, as they heard descriptions of Jesus emerge from the Jordan River, they heard words which would become sacred texts for their family and for the family after them and for community after community, words which we are privileged to have passed down to us, words that we call scripture. And I say that scripture <clears throat> has always been intended to be read as a family story for a church family. So last week in Children's Sunday School, we were talking about the dove which landed on Jesus as he emerged from the water, from being baptized. Uh, the dove, which if you were a family listening in the synagogue, uh, might remind you of the great flood. The great flood, when the sky was falling, when there is no end to rain in sight, and there is no land for leagues, but a dove sent out by Noah returned with an olive branch, signifying that after having survived 40 days and 40 nights at sea, there would be peace, there would be safety at last. Maybe that's what a family would hear. And we hear the story of Jesus' being led into the wilderness by the Spirit, a mysterious Spirit, perhaps of God. And we might take a second here, as families in the modern age, uh, to give ear, to think, oh hey, which Spirit or Spirits is my family led? Which voices define our family's vision of success? You know, uh, with full trust in scientific observation. We remember with older families 
that we breathe, we too breathe because of God's breath and because of God's spirit. We remember with those families uh, caring about Jesus that spirits are all around us, or if, if you prefer, uh, in this day and age, maybe powerful ideas are all around us. Uh, ideas sometimes shaped by big corporations, sometimes shaped by uh, government, sometimes shaped by just the society that we live in. So I, I invite you today to take a breath with the families of the first century. So we can ask whether our guiding spirit looks like God's spirit of truth and love. Uh, Jesus is led by the spirit to be tested in the wilderness by a character called the enemy, or Satan. For 40 days and 40 nights, he's in the wilderness, and there again we get echoes of Noah. And if we listen with first century families, we need to remember that Jesus chose not to have, or simply didn't have, superpowers. He didn't have superpowers. When we read about Jesus in the wilderness 40 days, I think it's easy as Canadians living the American dream, uh, living the Disney dream, um, to marvel at Jesus's somewhat inhuman self-discipline to not turn stones into bread. And, and the whole scene can, can become, if you're picturing it in your head like me, uh, sometimes it can become kind of like a training montage in a superhero movie, like, like Bruce Wayne uh, training to become a stronger Batman, or, or Wonder Woman learning about her powers that she's inherited. You know what I mean? Jesus, in this version of our superhero version, he's trained himself to superhuman heights, to survive without food or sleep. It's tempting to read this way, isn't it? Or else we marvel at his uncanny ability to argue with the enemy using the law. We think, oh, here's a man who has studied so much that he can use his incredible intellect and understanding as a lawyer to beat back all enemies, even the ultimate enemy. But I think all of these superhero approaches miss the point. And even though I love marveling as much as the next person, I, I think an unfortunate byproduct of all these flashy bodies on the screen is that the screen only captures the man who becomes Superman, or is already Superman, or at most the screen captures a group of intergalactic men with a few women thrown in. Um, so that we humans, as, as we're here, uh, surrounded by our daily reminders of our humanness and our finiteness, uh, we, we sometimes, um, we fail to celebrate uh, our humanness and our shared but diverse humanness. And I think it's more than unfortunate to forget the gift of being God's created creature. Jesus, though not created, um, still human, Jesus could answer hunger and the draw of unilateral power, I think, because his human family had been answering, had been living all these scenarios 
for generations and generations. And so what do I mean? Uh, this goes all the way back to King David, losing a son after misusing his power. All the way back to the ancient Israelites enduring slavery in Egypt. All the way back to Noah, as I've mentioned. And in fact, all the way back to the ancestral family, Abraham and Sarah. So Jesus stood with God's power and also all of these human stories behind him. But these are two ways of saying one truth, I think. God's power, human stories. Jesus entangled himself with the enemy, but he kept his integrity because we humans gave him humanity. And because God revealed God's divinity in humanity. Both of these statements. If you're worried that I'm leaving out Jesus' divinity or God's divinity, I will loosely quote for you Wiley Jenkins, a famous theologian I had the chance to, to see speak recently. Um, Dr. Jenkins said, we can't separate which part is Jesus' humanity and which part is Jesus' divinity. You can't say that the human part of Jesus was tempted and the divine part of Jesus prevailed against temptation. No, you've got to keep the two together. And I think this helps us. Because how did Jesus answer Satan, the personification of, of that which opposes life? Jesus could answer Satan because he spoke the words his family had spoken. Who learned those words from family members before them and from ancestors before them? So let's go to the text. And what does Jesus say when Satan tests him with, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Well, at that very moment, Jesus remembers a very Jewish family story that Mary or Joseph or a rabbi could have told him when he was a child. And Jesus said to him, I quote, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And this is Deuteronomy 6, the story of Deuteronomy. Jesus recalls the story of his people passed down to him through, um, through his parents. The story goes when Moses, one of the most famous leaders of Israelite history, led the Israelites as nomads through the wilderness, which is where Jesus is, by the way. He, Moses, once climbed up a mountain which was thundering and roaring. Moses spoke to God face to face and returned with commandments or instructions etched into stone. Moses uses these instructions to teach the people. And one of the teachings is, if we quote the full verse, do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massah. As you did at Massah. Perhaps Moses is saying, remember that time in Massah when you were thirsty and demanded to know why God led you into the wilderness to die? When out of desperation you quarreled with God, 
you massage with God. Because of your quarrel, God demonstrated to all the elders that God would provide, that God remembers you, his people, God's people. The story that Jesus is remembering says, we are God's people. We are his chosen family. And so I can likewise say to you here as we inherit the story, you are God's family. You are part of God's chosen people. So, given all of that context, as I said, yes, it's still possible to understand Jesus as somehow the best of the best of the masterful lawyers. Like sometimes when we see someone who has achieved everything one could dream of, and we assume that this person has put in a Herculean, more than humanly possible effort to get where they are. I'm guilty of that when I see people who are successful. And on one hand, we, we wouldn't be wrong. Uh, one of the goals of Matthew's early chapters is to establish Jesus as an expert, one far superior to the scribes, uh, superior to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, people who, by the way, have studied the Torah for their entire lifetimes. It's possible, even likely, that Matthew is writing to his own people, the Jews. Jews who have a whole caste, C-A-S-T-E, caste, dedicated to law. A people who really respect law. And yet, as I've discovered in life, sometimes it's possible to be completely right about something. Like that Jesus is, is a superhuman lawyer, uh, but at the same time be completely missing the point that's there for you, there for your family. And usually this happens when we don't have the context of the larger story. Which is why, as we listen to the narrative lectionary, it's so valuable that we're piecing together this context, this overarching story. A story that's tentative because we always find more diverse voices to include in this story. So it's right to say that Jesus is a masterful lawyer, but what he deals in is not Pearson Specter corporate law, if you watch Suits, um, law for people with money or gold to spare. No, I, I think Jesus deals in family stories, in family stories, and he answered the enemy's taking words out of context with a story with deep context, deep family roots. I challenge you here today not to think of Jesus as a superhero, but as a human in the midst of humans, just as the gospel was read in our midst. I challenge to see yourself in Jesus and in God who came down to earth, this time as a baby boy, yes, but God also makes appearances in our lives in various other guises too. And I think seeing Jesus and seeing ourselves as giving Jesus our humanity and our stories Doing that lifts up our families and 
of family stories. Doing that celebrates the dance that we are doing together to express God's creative life in us. And as we dance, we say that we are humans, we are blessed in our ability, in our finite ability, but our ability to be family to all people and creatures. That's what I challenge you with today. Amen.